This morning, I will be reading our scripture reading from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 to 20. The choice of life or death. This command I am giving you today is not too difficult for you, and it is not beyond your reach. It is not kept in heaven so distant that you must ask who will go up to heaven and bring it down so that so we can hear it and obey. It is not kept beyond the sea so far away that you must ask who will come across the sea to bring it to us so we can hear it and obey. No, the message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart so that you can obey it. Now listen. Today I am giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. For I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to keep his commands, decrees, and, regula and regulations by walking in his ways. If you do this, you will live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you and the land you are about to enter and occupy. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen, and if you are drawn away to serve and worship other gods, then I warn you now that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live a long, good life in the land you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. Today I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice that you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. You can, you can make this choice by loving the Lord your God, obeying him, and committing yourself firmly to him. This is the key to your life. And if you love and obey the Lord, you will live long in the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Would you join me in a unison prayer this morning? God, creator, for your glory shining forth in the sky and the sea, in the changing light on the hills, in the flight of birds, in the plants of the field, for the gift of life in all its fullness, we thank you. Jesus, Redeemer, for blessing children, healing the sick, raising up the lowly, suffering the brokenness of the world in our own body, that we might have fullness of life, we thank you. Holy Spirit, Comforter, for breathing new hope and strength into our lives, breaking down barriers, drawing human beings together in love, resisting all that diminishes fullness of life, we thank you.
Holy Trinity, in all that we do and say and are, may we always choose life for ourselves and for our neighbors. Amen. Judy, thank you for that prelude this morning. And um, that chorus, I think, is kind of what our whole series has been about um, in how the church um, lives out a new kind of political body. Um, and, and I wrote down on my paper the, the lines from that, kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But there's something about that name. There's something about Jesus. There's something about him that, that draws us in. And there's some, supposed to be something attractive uh, about Jesus. There is something attractive about Jesus. But there's also supposed to be something attractive about how the church is living in the world that draws people in. Well, we are um, concluding our series on kingdom politics this morning. And um, later this week, um, many of you will go and participate in a system of, of voting. And today, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, and the rest of our lives, we will participate in living out the ethics of Jesus, the, the politics of Jesus that we are called to live. Our series this morning, our sermon this morning is going to focus on this idea that was part of our scripture, that was part of our um, responsive reading or prayer this morning, focusing on life. The story of scripture is in part a story about life. God takes a chaotic void and he breathes life into, <clears throat> into it. Humanity is created in the image of God and breathed into with God's spirit, God's ruah, his, his breath. He breathes life. And so you and I and all creation are created for life. In fact, it's, death only comes in as a result of our rebellion against God. The rest of the biblical narrative is ultimately pointed at getting back to life. And in Jesus, conquering of the powers of sin and death, Jesus is making it once again possible to experience real, whole life connected with God, connected with one another, connected with his creation as we were intended to be from the very beginning. Our scripture comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 30. And what's happening at this point in Deuteronomy is Moses is nearing the end of his life. He has led the people out of Egypt. They have gone to the promised land, looked into it. They sent spies in. They, the spies 
all, all but two come back and say, you know, there's some really big people here. There's some really big cities here. Uh, I don't think we can do it. And, and the people kind of hold back at that moment when they're about to enter the promised land. And they are uh, sent then into the wilderness for 40 years of wandering. And now at this point, they are back at the doorstep, about to enter the promised land again. And Moses is reminding them of their story, reminding them how God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt, reminding them how God has preserved them through 40 years of wandering through the the wilderness. God has kept them safe. Uh, Moses says, you know, you've been wandering through the wilderness for these 40 years, and yet your clothes haven't worn out, your shoes haven't worn out, you've had food to eat. Yeah, sure, you've been grumbling and complaining about what kind of food it is, and, and God has just continued to preserve us as a people. The people are being reminded that they are called to live a different sort of life. In verses 11 through 14, Moses tells them, Look, this commandment isn't going to be too hard for you to understand. You don't need to uh, ascend to heaven to understand it. You don't need to sail to the far side of the world to understand it. There were different religions at that time. There's different uh, philosophies and religions in our world today that that think knowledge is is something secret, that it's mystical, and and that you have to uh, somehow magically attain it. And Moses is saying, look, that is not the case. God has made it very plain to us. It's not that hard to understand. It's near to you. Moses says, essentially, say it, feel it, and live it. And in verse 15, Moses says there's two options, life and prosperity versus death and adversity. In verse 19, Moses makes it even a little more plain when he says life versus death, blessing versus curses, and he tells them what the right answer is. Choose life. Verse 20, Moses says, here's how. Love the Lord. Follow God's way of living. Moses has just expounded on all of the commandments, all all the ways of honoring God, worshiping God, keeping God's law, which involve the way we treat one another. Jesus actually summed it up this way. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And so the politics of the kingdom, the way God calls his people to live, and the way Jesus calls the church to live can be characterized simply as for life. Now let me just give a a little disclaimer here. Sometimes what I say gets read and heard and understood through the lens of national politics. It happens. And so some this morning will hear support for this side or that side or, or uh, condemnation for this side or that side, and that is not at all what I am trying to get at this morning. 
Because I think what we've tried to establish is that the kingdom of God does not align with uh, a Republican Party or a Democratic Party. Uh, the, the kingdom of God is not characterized by elephants or donkeys. The, the kingdom of God is characterized by the lamb, the slaughtered lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Part of the point is that neither party, neither platform conforms to the image of Christ or the kingdom of God. And so the church, you and I, are called to another way of living. You know, Israel had all kinds of laws to protect vulnerable people. They had whole systems to try and keep people from sinking into uh, extreme poverty and, and debt. It was called the year of Jubilee when they released the slaves, they released the prisoners, they forgave debt. They had laws that um, made them watch out for the foreigners and the aliens living in their midst. One of those uh, passages comes out of Deuteronomy, and, and years ago when the boys were a little bit younger, uh, we were listening to Kids Cookie Break. It's on WJTL, Saturday mornings, and there's this song from a group or from an album called Slugs and Bugs, which is just supposed to be this fun uh, album that you, you sing these crazy weird songs to. And they had decided at one point that they were going to take some obscure passages of Scripture and put them to music for kids to sing. You know, we, we all like those songs that remind us of Scripture and are easy to sing. Well, this one, um, the words went something like this. Do not eat. Do not eat anything you find already dead. Do not eat anything you find already dead. But you may give it to the alien. You may give it to the alien. You may give it to the alien living in your town. And those are words directly out of Deuteronomy. I think it's chapter 14. I looked it up this week. And every once in a while, we still sing it at our house because it's just this very weird song. But I was thinking about that passage and this very weird, obscure song and realizing that it demonstrates in just a microcosm what I'm talking about that the people of Israel were called to a different way of living. And so that's the do not eat anything you find already dead, which sounds like common sense to us. We're not people that generally go out to the road, find some roadkill, scrape it up, and bring it home and, and have it for dinner. Some people do that. And, and maybe there's been times in, in your life where that, you know, that's been a, a kosher meal. Um, but it was not a kosher meal for the Israelites, for the, the people of God. But at the same time, that food was acceptable to give to strangers, aliens living in their midst. It was a way of, in a weird way, loving those around them. Very obscure, strange passage. But it demonstrates both the differentness that the people of God were called to but also the way that they could love those around them that were in need. There were also laws uh, for the Israelites of limiting violent retribution. <clears throat> in the ancient world, it was nothing to... I, I mean, many laws that were codified had extreme punishments for crimes that were committed. Um, 
You know, the code of Hammurabi, if you stole something, you might have your arm chopped off. That, to me, is an extreme uh, way of punishing crime. Um, but it was to make that punishment so intense that no one would ever want to, to do it back, uh, do it again. And you couldn't because you were missing an arm. But the laws of God were about limiting violent retribution. They even had towns designated as havens for those that were accused of crimes to prevent families from seeking their own retribution. And so we hear the passage eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But really, even in the ancient world, that was a limiting of violence. No more than eye for eye. No more than tooth for tooth. I already mentioned the year of Jubilee, which was to limit slavery and debt. And this was a huge innovation in the ancient world that kept people from becoming slaves over and over and over. Because remember, the Israelites had suffered that very thing. They had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They had experienced it. God didn't want them to become the masters. Jesus then takes it to a whole different level in the New Testament. When he comes and he says, you've heard it said eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evildoer and turn the other cheek. Jesus, in his, uh, one of his inaugural sermons, announces the year of the Lord's favor, that is jubilee, the release of prisoners and debts. And Jesus is talking about debts in a whole different, expanded, comprehensive way. Jesus heals the lepers. He heals the lame. He heals the sick. He interrupts capital punishment. He rescues a bride and groom from financial ruin and public embarrassment in his first uh, miracle in the book of John. Remember, Jesus goes to the wedding at Cana, and, this, and he turns the, the water into wine. This is a, a huge thing. It's not just turning water into wine to keep the party going, although that's part of the story. But he's rescuing the bride and groom from financial ruin. He's rescuing them from public embarrassment at their wedding. In John 10.10, Jesus is talking about himself being the good shepherd. And Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is what Jesus has done. Jesus has come to bring a wholeness to life. To pay a debt that we could not pay to make possible restoration and reconciliation between us and God, us and others, in a way that we could never do on our own. And so we are called to be people of life. And this is hard for the church because we live in a culture of death. We have extreme uh, 
uh, runaway, rampant military spending, do you know the U.S. outspends the next 10 countries combined in military spending last year? You look at our numbers of um, abortions. You, you look at the way that we uh, just have debt built into our system that's so extreme that college students graduate and spend the next how many years of their life paying off debt. There's a whole host of issues, prostitution, pornography, that contributes to a culture of death. And yet the church is called to seek life, whole life. Not just that someone has the right to live, but because they bear the image of God. Because God has breathed into humanity His very Spirit. There is a sanctity to life. And so we are called to seek real life for our neighbors for our local, national, and global neighbors because there are no geographic boundaries to the church. We're called to seek life for the guilty. Sure, there are consequences to actions, but we also believe that no one is beyond redemption. Even the thief on the cross is promised paradise We seek life for our enemies. This is maybe one of the places where it seems like nation states and the church most often need to diverge in our paths. So we need to take seriously that call to seek life. We're called to seek life for the poor. We're called to seek life for the marginalized and the oppressed. Jesus cared for marginalized women in his society. He cared for the lepers who were ostracized and set outside. Jesus even meets with a Samaritan woman at the well during the middle of the day. We're also called to seek life for the financially wealthy. Sometimes the, the stress and the worry and the idolatry of stuff, of money, gets in the way and doesn't allow us to live a real life committed to Jesus. And so Jesus even invited one rich man to give it all up in order to follow him. He invites him to come find real life. And Jesus doesn't tone it down when the man walks away when he is disturbed because we're told that he had much and he walks away, Jesus doesn't say, oh, hold on, I didn't, I didn't really mean it. I meant it metaphorically. I meant it spiritually. No, there is a real idol in this man's life. There is really something that's keeping him from following Jesus and experiencing whole, real life. We're called to seek life for the elderly to value experience and wisdom that comes from many years of life. And we're called to seek life for the unborn and for folks who feel they are put in a position where that's a real dilemma that they face. And we need to be willing to sit down with people and hear their stories, hear the situations that they face, to be willing to put ourselves out there for those 
that face those challenges. We are called to be people for life, holistic life, what the Old Testament called shalom, wholeness, peace. See, sanctity of life is not really the question for us in the church. Followers of Jesus may discuss, debate, even disagree on how exactly nation states and partisan politics help uh, support this, how partisan politics agendas actually help care for life. And those are conversations that we can have. But those are also conversations that too often have ripped us apart, ripped and divided the body of Christ. We need to commit to being people for life, whole life for everyone. We also need to become educated about underlying root issues that are often overlooked by surface-level partisan politics. I don't know how many of you have ever looked up those, the voter guides that, that come out. And, and they reduce everything to a line and a check mark. We can ask questions about how are the poor best helped. Some think that's through government aid. Others through increased educational opportunities. Others through the availability of jobs and what kind of jobs. And we can debate on whether the government should direct these or not. But we should care about the poor. And we should seek whole life. What about access to health care? There's all kinds of conversations we can have about how that practically gets implemented, about how government is involved in that. But we should care about people's health. We should care about the lives and businesses and property threatened by mob violence. And we should care and be able to sit down with those who feel oppressed by systems and structures. And maybe that you don't have to agree with them. But if we're not willing to sit down, if we're not willing to listen, if we're not willing to put ourselves in the place of another, what are we doing? And when it comes to issues of abortion, how do we support vulnerable women and men? How do we address underlying issues that may be related to prostitution and the porn industry? How do we address affordable health care and education? How do we form caring networks around people to advocate for the life and wellness and wholeness of all? And maybe that's related to the legal system. But as people who are called to seek life, whether a system says guilty or not, you and I are called to love. Sometimes, how the nation state needs to address issues is different from how the church is called to address issues. We read in Acts that the early followers of Jesus sold their goods, they sold their property, they cared for one another's debts as a community. 
Now, if a government's involved in that, if a government's enforcing that, we call that communism. But when people voluntarily do that under the lordship of Christ, when they care for one another's burdens, when they are willing to hold their goods and and give of themselves, we call that mutual aid. And it can be a very beautiful thing. There's also times where the church needs to act as only the church can and seek real, whole life for people. We believe that Jesus came, that we might have life, life abundantly, or life to the full. And church, we are called to be people of service and witness to the fullness of life found in Christ. I don't know what's going to happen this week. There's a national election, if you didn't know that. If you haven't been bombarded by all the the pamphlets in in your mailbox, you know, come Wednesday, I don't know what is actually going to be in my mailbox. It's just been stuffed full of stuff. We had a a political person show up uh, at the house on Saturday and asked if we had a plan for voting, and, and then asked if we wanted more pamphlets. I said, thank you, I'm very pamphleted out at this point. I don't know what will happen with that. What I do know, and what I am most concerned about, is how we live today, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, What I am most concerned about is not what box you have already checked and mailed in or will check on Tuesday at a polling place. What I am most concerned about is how the body of Christ lives, how we serve, how we witness to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because his lordship, we're not voting on this week. We align ourselves with the kingdom of God every day. In the choices we make, in the words we say, in the way we live, this is what we are called to. I invite us to stand and say together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Here's our, our charge for this week. And it comes from a song that's been playing on a contemporary Christian radio uh, pretty often here recently. And I hope they continue to play it for a long time, and especially a lot this week. 
These are the words from the song Revolutionary by Josh Wilson. Maybe you're not like me. Maybe we don't agree. Maybe that doesn't mean we got to be enemies. Maybe we just get brave, take a big leap of faith, call a truce so me and you can find a better way. Let's take some time, open our eyes, look and listen. And we're going to find that we're more alike than we are different. Why does kindness seem revolutionary? When did we let hate get so ordinary? Let's turn it around, flip the script, judge slow, love quick. God help us get revolutionary. I'm turning the TV down, drowning their voices out, because I believe that you and me can find some common ground. See, maybe I'm not like you, but I'll walk a mile in your shoes if it means I might see the world the way you do. Let's take some time, open our eyes, look and listen. And we're going to find we're more alike than we are different. Why does kindness seem revolutionary? When did we let hate get so ordinary? Let's turn it around, flip the script, judge slow, love quick. God help us get revolutionary. What would Jesus do? He would love first. He would love first. What would Jesus do? He would love first. He would love first. So we should love first. Why does kindness seem revolutionary? When did we let hate get so ordinary? Let's turn it around, flip the script, judge slow, love quick. God help us get revolutionary. May the church live a revolutionary kind of life this week and every week. Go in peace.